Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Welcome to episode 125 of Life Beyond the Numbers. This episode is going out on Saturday, April 29th, 2023. And I believe that from May onwards, we will be back to normal scheduling. So there's been some disruption in the last couple of months, since the beginning of the year, really. And if you want to know anything about what caused that disruption, do have a listen to episode 122, What Matters Most. And for those of you who have listened to that episode and are fully aware, I am delighted to share that M&M both came out of hospital a couple of weeks ago now. They're both home, they're doing so well and they will continue to gain strength day by day. And as I said, from May onwards, we will be back to what I would call my normal or typical schedule. So on the first, second and third Saturdays of the month, you can expect a conversation episode with somebody else, me and a guest. And on the fourth Saturday of the month, you can expect a solo episode. And on the fifth Saturday, if there is one, a compilation episode. And to take us into May on this last Saturday in April, this is a quite a long episode actually, and it's an episode between Dr. Suzanne Evans, David Lee and myself. It's an episode that explores the importance of finding work that aligns with your values and your interests. And we talk about some childhood experiences and interests and mentors that influenced our career, I guess. And we talk about how to bring joy or fulfillment into our work. It's quite interactive. There's some fun and laughter in there. And if you want to watch a video on the, of this episode, you can, I'll leave a link in the comments if you prefer to watch it by video. And I'm just putting out the audio and the audio has been slightly edited also. And 
Suzanne, David and I met, we released an episode late last year, episode 113, I think it was, Psychological Safety. And I'll leave a link to that in the show notes also. For now, enjoy the May bank holiday weekend if you're in the UK and enjoy May wherever you are in the world. And I'll be back next week with our normal schedule. Until then. Well, hello again. (laughs) It's very nice to see you both. So today we're having a conversation about work and how we found our thing at work. And this came about from a conversation that we had a few weeks ago about finding our passion and a podcast that you shared, David. So I don't know whether you want to start off, David, by talking about the podcast that you listened to that got us to this point, and then we'll start having our conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it came out of something we were talking about. Maybe it was like, hey, what's new? And what are you discovering? And I shared this really cool experience in a coaching session that I had with Julie Riesler. Her podcast is called Your Youest You, which is just such a great, great name. She trademarked it and it came from just this like intuitive download about what her work was all about. And it's a wonderful podcast. So we started riffing about like, what does that mean to really be you and bring you into the world? And I think it was you, Suzanne, who said, hey, let's do our next Mm -hmm. recording on that. So yeah, this is going to be really fun. (laughs) It's that figuring it out, isn't it? Where you are now and how you got to this point, I think is a really interesting thing to think about. And I suppose the question I was interested in, both of you actually, is where you've ended up now in your earlier life. Were there any clues about that that would have made you think this is where you'd end up or have you ended up somewhere completely different? David, I'll ask you first. Yeah. So two things that I want to mention. One is interest and one is origin story. So one of the things like to be candid, few happy memories of my childhood was reading. I loved reading. And I'm sure part of it was to escape, but also for my Myers-Briggs, which is INFP, we tend to love the fantasy world, the dream world, et cetera. And then as a teenager, noticing that the musicians I tended to like the most were those that told stories. And those two interests as a child and young person, it's interesting how that's really shaped my career path. And then just as far as origin story, being acutely aware of the impact that my father not being happy about his career choice and feeling stuck in what he was doing, doing work he hated, but feeling like that was his only option to support the family and how that looped around decades later into my fascination with the workplace and then working with people as a career coach, helping them find work that works for them. Hmm, Interesting. It's funny because when I was first thinking about this question, 
I thought, oh, I don't know whether I have an answer to that. But you talking about reading and stories, actually, that was the same for me. I used to spend so much time in my own head. I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. So I spent a lot of time in my own head. I can remember walking home from school and and making up stories about what I was doing. And I was obsessed with Heidi. Have you ever heard of the book Heidi? Yes. Yep. Heidi. Um, So I used to pretend I was Heidi walking home from school. (laughs) So that kind of imagination and story was definitely there from a young age. But I think I went away from that in terms of where my first career, it was consulting and it was very rational. And and I think I almost forgot that side of things. But if you'd asked me when I was a child what I wanted to do, I would have said either a spy or an astronaut, because that was basically my my career ambitions as a, as a child. <laughs> Neither of which I've ever managed to do. (laughs) (laughs) I love the spy one. That's awesome. (laughs) It's kind of like consulting, so, you know, kind (laughs) of, (laughs) in a more boring way, yes. (laughs) What about you, Susan? You were nodding with the the reading and the stories. Oh, the reading, definitely. And the escapism, I think... I was an avid reader from a very young age and I don't know who encouraged it or whether it was just always there, but reading was something that brought the best of pleasure. And I think studying as well and learning, I think it was a way of escaping housework. (laughs) If I was busy, I didn't have to hoover or do the dishes or whatever it was. So I was happy to sit in my room and study. And and I know now it's almost like a comfort blanket at times that studying or learning something new and the, the curiosity. And I guess the curiosity came from childhood as well. I spent a lot of time with my uncle on a farm and he was really patient and great at explaining things in a way that wasn't patronizing but that he would bring you with him. And so even stuff that I probably wasn't remotely interested in has stayed with me over the years. And, you know, sometimes you just know how to do something, even though you never really remember learning it, that muscle memory is there from childhood or whatever. And I noticed that coming up when I was gardening last weekend for the first time ever. But clearly it wasn't because somebody had taught me and I was curious to learn. So I think the reading, the curiosity, storytelling has played out in my life. But I did accountancy, so I really don't know where that came from. And the only thing that I have memory of of numbers was always saving money. (laughs) I don't think that had anything to do with it. And when I was about, I think, 12, 13, I would write down the top 10 from top of the pops every single week so I have a notebook I found it at home with the top 10 every week now I have no idea why I was creating that list but I think it had something to do with the numbers that I've always been fascinated by numbers as well you know I also wonder I don't know if we've ever talked about this have you done your Clifton Strengths? 
I've done a variation of Clifton. Okay, because it'd be really interesting. So when you said you love studying, is I also wonder, besides getting out of the housework, which that in itself is of value, I also wonder when you combine that with listening to your uncle and being captivated by that, if the Clifton strengths of input and then also learner is kind of self-evident, learner, but input is one of your top five because it, it's one of my top five and it helped explain why I read the encyclopedia as a kid. And even though I wasn't a hunter, I would memorize like all sorts of bullet ballistic. My father was a hunter to help get food for the family. And I would like memorize all these ballistic tables for bullets. And I wasn't what I was into, but it, people who are who have input as a strength love gathering knowledge and then typically sharing it too. But anyway, so I'd be curious if that's one of your top strengths. Mm, interesting. What you said as well about the unhappiness with your dad at work, what I remember is my dad setting up his own business when I was about 14 or 15 and always saying that the only way to go was to work for yourself. And I think that was a big driver for getting out of, of the, or the organizational workplace and setting up alone. It was always there in the back of my mind that I would work for myself, not necessarily knowing what that would be in. The same thing happened to me, actually. So my dad set up his own business when I was about 12. And I think it was in the back of my mind all along. And so when I did decide to go out on my own, it actually wasn't that scary. And I can remember friends of mine saying, oh, my goodness, you're so brave. And I was like, am I? It, it just seemed normal to me because my teenage years, both my parents worked in the business. And so that the, their office was in our spare bedroom. And I grew up with that. And that was how it was. And so to me, it just seemed quite normal. But then at the time, I, I realised none of my friends had parents who had their own businesses. So it seemed really unusual for me to leave a well-paid, secure job and go off and do my own thing. But to me, it felt quite normal. It felt more scary actually to not do it than to do it to me because I was so unhappy in the job I was doing. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that what you see in your, especially in adolescence, I think, has a big impact on what you end up doing. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting that both of you mentioned examples of how in your early part of your career, you were sort of following your non-UST you. And it makes me think of, it, I think it'd be really helpful for people if we talked a little bit about, shared a little bit about other ways we tried to be what we weren't. And I have just one that comes to mind, and I'm, I'm hoping you two <laughs> can add to it. That mm -hmm. One of the things, it's super humbling and, and kind of cringeworthy is when I worked one summer putting myself through college as a door-to-door -door salesman, which was a brutal way to <laughs> make money, especially if you're painfully shy. Oh my God. But one of the things that it did was introduce me to the world of personal development because this company has been around for over a hundred years. They recruit college students. So they know 
the only way these college kids are going to be able to survive is do lots of like personal development, reading, listening to, this is back with audio tapes. I remember listening to motivational speakers and thinking like, I want to be a motivational speaker. And I remember when I first started my speaking part of my career, oh my God, I was uber intense. <laughs> Just, oh man. And I remember the first time I, I did a presentation for my former employer. My former boss goes like, like, calm down, calm down. And I was like, what's he talking about? Like, you got to be like super motivational. And over the years, it's really hit me. Like I'm enthusiastic about what I'm into, but I'm not one of those admonishing the audience, storming back and across the stage kind of people. So I'm curious are there examples that come to your mind of how you tried to force yourself to be something that you weren't and then the real you emerged later? I think for me, it was when I was in big four consultancy. So I loved the job, which was working with clients. And I was basically doing similar work to what I do now around change management and people development and all that sort of thing. So I loved that part. But the bit that I think I struggled to shoehorn myself into was the kind of corporate structure. And I think the longer I did it for, the harder that became. Because I I sort of realised there were other ways of doing the things that we were doing. But you didn't have the option. You had to follow the corporate way of doing things. And I really didn't enjoy all the other stuff that went around it. So the target setting and all the appraisals and all that sort of thing. I just did not like that. And I think it was, for me, that's what did it. That's why I left. Also the traveling, I think it got to me. So I enjoyed that to begin with, but then it all got a bit much for me traveling all of the time. And so I think that was the catalyst for me leaving. It wasn't that I hated the job because I didn't, I love doing the thing because basically it's what I still do, but it was the structure around it that I didn't like and the lack of freedom I've come to realize over the last few years that that's a really big thing for me is that feeling of being free and as soon as I feel like something or someone or a client is trying to control me then I have like quite a visceral reaction to it and then I I have to walk away and so I think for me that was what was the catalyst for me going out on my own was that I want to be in charge of my own destiny and I can't I can't be in this structure anymore I have to do something else so it's more for you it's like the workplace ecosystem in the big Mm -hmm. four just wasn't a fit for who you are I've realized over time it actually is true in my personal life too that I I really don't like the feeling of someone trying to tell me what to do and it's actually not always a particularly good character trait I'll admit it but it is it I have an instinctive reaction to that feeling of someone trying to control me I really don't like it oh I relate to that you know it's funny it's I'm very good at following instruction but I hate being told what to do So I can follow something. If it's a process, I can follow it. And as long as it makes sense. But when somebody tries to control the way I approach it, that drives me insane. Yeah. So I'm with you there, Suzanne. (laughs) 
But for me, I really loved numbers, actually. So pursuing a career in accountancy, at least a first career, I would say, was was probably a really good idea. And I actually really enjoyed the big six environment because I learned how to work. I learned great skills that stood to me, that still stand to me. And I think what I found was the more I spent time with people and numbers and doing the accounting side of things, I first of all realized that I didn't want to make money for other people, that that wasn't how I wanted to spend my life, that making money for other people. So I went the nonprofit route and thought, well, at least that way, doing some good in the world. But what I found there was people just saw the numbers person. They didn't see the value that I brought to the organization as well. And it wasn't true all of the time, but there was a balance. And funnily enough, the time I really remember, I think I would say trying not to be me in order to get a job almost, was when it backfired. I had a pretty tough reputation. (laughs) There was no nonsense, but I had a tough but fair reputation. So people always knew that they could come to me and that I wouldn't hold a grudge and all of that. But I had a big demanding job being in charge of finance. So you kind of have to have a, a thick skin. And I remember people telling me that I was scary, that I had a scary reputation, which I didn't want to have. I didn't want that. So I went for a job interview And I really toned down how I came across. And after the interview, the feedback I got was that they didn't think that I was tough enough for the job. And I found that really fascinating that there was I almost diluting myself, who I am, to fit what another organization or other people had told me. This was a completely different organization. But instead of being myself, I was showing up trying to alter that person and then that backfired. And I think that's really important that when we dampen parts of ourselves that are really the vibrancy or the essence that other people will not necessarily know that, but they'll pick up on us not being authentic, I guess. That's reminded me of a similar experience that I had when I was still based in London, still working in Big Four, but I'd been away on projects a lot. So I'd been based in Scotland for about a year and I was just desperate to get out of that project and be based in London all the time. So I decided to start applying for jobs. My best friend at work had left and she'd got another job based in the city. So I thought I'll do the same. And I applied to all sorts of different organisations and I ended up having some interviews with a law firm to um, just go into a normal HR job. So out of consultancy and into HR. And it wasn't what I really wanted to do, but I was just so desperate to leave. So I did exactly the same as you. I don't know what who I thought I was trying to be, but I was, I was not being Suzanne. I was being somebody else. And I got right to the end of the interview process. And the last stage was to go out for an informal lunch with the team. And then that was it. And so off we went, went to a very nice restaurant in London and I had lunch and I was conscious of being less of myself and being a bit quieter and not quite as noisy as I normally am. And anyway, at the end, they I got a phone call from the recruitment consultant to say, I'm really sorry, Suzanne, they just didn't like you. <laughs> it, was just, it was so awful and I was so upset. This idea that 
they didn't want to take me on. I'd got through everything else, all the kind of difficult interviews, but the team had basically turned around and went, we don't like her. We don't want her to join. And so I didn't get the job. I was absolutely devastated. But I, I don't know. They may not have liked me as me, but somehow it was even worse when I was trying to be somebody else and they still didn't like me. <laughs> I think yeah. it was a lucky escape looking back on it. <laughs> and I wonder, the question I was wondering about, because... I suppose when I was in school, I didn't really know what was ahead. I mean, obviously, like, look back now, I had no idea. That's a whole other conversation. But one of the things I realized is that there was somebody who saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see at the time. And that was the accountancy teacher, funnily enough, who said, this stuff comes naturally to Susan. Now, whether you'd say that in this day and age or not. But I got it and I understood it and it made sense to me in a way that other stuff just didn't. And his advice was pursue accountancy, which, of course, that's what I've done. Did I don't do that anymore. So were there people in your lives that influenced directions or choices, whether that was parents or teachers or mentors you've met who saw something in you? that maybe you didn't see in yourself that helped you know more about who you are? Go on, David, I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting question for me because I don't feel like growing up who I've become or at least who I've become and career-wise especially was seen because as Suzanne knows with doing the career journey interview that never ended with me. Thought we finished it eventually. Yeah, we, yes, we did. <laughs> that I was all about science and nature growing up and planned on being a wildlife biologist. And that's what I got and was a good student. So I got all sorts of kudos for that kind of stuff. It was actually later in life, two comments from friends who, like really close friends, one who said, I had been helping her. She had started her own business and was new to Maine, where I live, Maine in the United States. And she said something, kind of like a throwaway line, like she said, you love being the wind underneath people's wings, like you love helping people. And I thought, that's so true. It's much easier for me to help people do stuff than to get motivated to than to do it myself. And even though a lot of my work has been audience facing, it's much more soul satisfying to be behind the scenes and help other people. And so that has stayed with me. And that's like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And then the other one was a buddy of mine calls me up one Friday afternoon and he goes, you know, I hardly ever drink, but I'm in my office. I've had a couple shots of scotch because <laughs> it's Friday afternoon and it's been a long week. And he says something like, you know, dude, I've been thinking about you and your storytelling and you really need to focus more on that. And then he just goes on and on. And it's funny because I joke with him. And again, that was like 
10 or 15 years ago that it was his scotch induced channeling because <laughs> he describes himself as not being really intuitive but in that moment he <laughs> the, the portal to cosmic consciousness was open because <laughs> of the scotch so those and both have really stayed with me and have helped me continue in my journey in terms of shaping what i do i love that story <laughs> <laughs> Scotch-induced advice and wisdom. <laughs> and what about you, Suzanne? It's funny, right from when I was quite young, in secondary school, I think the idea of having a career in a sort of business context was definitely always a thing. So when I was at secondary school, they had a young enterprise. I don't know whether that's something that's made it to the States, but it's where you you set up a little business in your school with your classmates and you run it as a project and you, you have different roles and you go out into the community and sell this stuff. You have to make it and all that stuff. It's really good fun. So I did that. But, and I did a, another project, which was similar, but I always focused on sales and marketing. That was always my thing and actually for a long time I wanted to go into advertising that that was kind of the thing that I wanted to do but then I remember one of the teachers at school said to me you're really good with people and you know you should do something around that so that was the starting to think about it and then but even when I started university I did a business management degree I still had very much an idea that I was going to go down the advertising route but in my first year we had to do a bit of everything and that's when I started to do more of the kind of psychology side of things. And again, it was a lecturer at university who said, this really seems to work for you, this people development piece. I hadn't really thought about it up to that point. Everything I'd done had always been focused on going into advertising. <laughs> and then after that, that was it. So once I went into my second year at uni, I then really specialised in all the kind of people development, personnel management, as it was back in Victorian times, and that side of things. And that was it then. That was that was what I wanted to do. But I think it was right from that starting point of almost loving that business, commerce, that side of things, but definitely very much around people. And then I think with the sort of academic side of, of me in that, that aspect, my cousin went to university so he's 12 years older than me and he did a PhD and I went to visit him when I was about seven and remember being very taken with the idea of that and me thinking oh you know well I'd like to do that and sort of going around his halls of residence and and thinking it was pretty cool I mean he did astrophysics which is not for me but I put that idea in my head and and I think all through my life my mum in particular has always been saying to me right from when I was very young I can imagine you doing a doctorate and me just laughing and like no don't be so ridiculous so when I finally did do one she did the kind of classic mum thing and, and say well I, I told you that you were going to do a doctorate but I think maybe that encouragement had always been there to kind of keep learning and keep developing hmm. cool you know our examples makes me think of and I'll remember to to bring this up at the end when we talk about tools is the reflected best self exercise, which is so helpful because as, as you both know, so often we can't see ourselves as others see us because we're in our skin and the reflected best self exercise, which is collaboration of University of Michigan's business school and Harvard business school. And 
uh, this, like the simplest version of it is just asking people who know you well in a variety of contexts, like, when have you seen me at my best? And why is that me at my best? And you can add a bunch of other questions in terms of what do you see as my strengths, et cetera. And I've done that both uh, for myself and then with clients. And boy, have you two done that? Because it's such an eye opener. I think in a form, yeah. I think when I had some coaching a few years ago, it was around strengths and what would people say were my strengths. And that was a really interesting exercise because I think sometimes when people ask you, it's hard, particularly if you're in a low state to identify what are your strengths. So to think about what other people would say about you can be quite. Well, this is this is taken at the next step because mm. of that very point is not for you to try to figure out what they think, but actually to ask them. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Susan, you asked the question about mentors and things. I'm wondering if you had any that you remembered from your life. Well, I mentioned the accountancy teacher early on, but it was a, definitely a mentor, actually, that I worked with who saw how I got on with people in a way that maybe I didn't see as much. And and then I did one of those personality tests. I think it was a DISC one at the time, one of them anyway. And one of the findings that they feed back to you was that I had the rare ability to be as good with people as I was with details. And I can see that that is rare. <laughs> And, and that helped me to move more to the people side, which was really where my interest was. Because the funny thing for me, I think, with accountancy was the numbers were always telling a story. So accountancy was just a storytelling technique in a different way. And I could understand that story. But what I was really interested in is why no one else was interested in the story. <laughs> And how could I tell the story in a way that brought people with me? And so that really involved me understanding the people side more and then just getting more interested in that. And at the end of the day, I think if you can get on well with people and work well with people, the numbers will kind of take care of themselves. You still need people looking after that side, but it helps to have people working in other teams in the organization who get that side as well because people and numbers go through everything we do there is no organization without people or numbers they just don't exist so I think they are the fundamental building blocks and often they get parceled out and separated and made into these like special skills when actually if all of us had a a basic understanding of how to relate to our fellow human beings and, and the importance of, of understanding the numbers that work places might be a bit more hospitable. And I suppose over the years, those Suzanne to kind of answer the question, there have been people who have seen stuff in me, sure, that I wasn't aware of. And probably friends as well, like you've said, David, who've made a remark and I've kind of gone, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's funny. And so I had a coffee the other day with Emma O'Brien, who you know, oh, yeah. Susan. Yeah. And so we had a coffee and we were just chatting about work and what we were doing. And as you do, I haven't seen her for a couple of years. And she said, uh, she said oh, you really love operating in that messy space, don't you, Suzanne? You're really comfortable with messy. And I was like, oh, 
no one's ever said that to me before, but yeah, I suppose. And I came home and I said that to my husband and he said, are you? Because that's not how you are in your personal life at all. <laughs> but yeah, you have that sudden, oh yeah, maybe that is the space in which I work. That's so interesting because I put an episode out, a podcast episode last week. David, I know you've listened to it about a recent event with my mother and sister in a car accident, my mother and aunt, her sister. And my sister listened to it. And OK, it's my sister. But even still, she came back to me afterwards and she said, you have an incredible way of turning a tough situation into an inspirational conversation. And it's not the first time I've heard you do that. And that is who I am. And I've always been like that, actually, with people that no matter how difficult or horrible the situation is, I can find something to bring us out of it and not bring us out like positive and ignore it, but actually turn it around so that there's another perspective. And then at the weekend, I had the absolute privilege of being in an audience with David White. He was oh, here really? in Oxford, in the music room of one of the colleges, and there were 120 or 30 people. And something he said was, there's an invitation, I've got it written here, there's an invitation to a deeper conversation. Share your troubles in a creative story. And that's your gift to the world. And I thought, wow. We're talking about what's the youest you and how do you become the youest you? And I think it's an ever evolving, you know, I still feel like I'm trying to find that youest you of me, meest me. And, and that was another clue for me, because I always know that I want to help people resolve difficult situations. And we talk about whether you call it difficult or not. And I think I like what David White says is that actually, there's no such thing as going through life without difficulties. Let's call a spade a spade at times. And let's actually figure out what is it about the situation that's difficult, mm -hmm. deal with that and come out the other side. And renaming it without facing it may not do the same thing but naming it just to make it sound like it's going to be difficult isn't the way either I think it's more about when the situation unfolds that's tough and is tense and then yeah that's where I like to live wow but I think you're right you don't answer this question do you this the USU or, or, you know, your thing or, or the, the niche that you want to occupy in the world. I, I think it's an ever changing feast, isn't it? And you inch closer. It's like a trail of breadcrumbs that you follow and you inch closer and, and you do a piece of work and you think, yeah, that wasn't it. But then you do another piece of work and think, oh, actually, that was close to it. And you just get nearer and nearer. Absolutely. And I, I love what you said, Susan, about David White. A couple of reasons. One is, and I think we've talked about this in previous conversations, I love what <clears throat> I remember him saying years ago, how many years ago, when bards and poets would go from town to town, they weren't coming there as gurus, like here are the seven steps to becoming a great silversmith, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> they were sharing stories of their struggles and that was their gift. 
And so back to what he said in the presentation that you were at, I think both one of the greatest gifts we can give others is to share our stories of our struggles and our epiphanies, as well as one of the most useful tools, back to what you were just talking about, Suzanne, is availing yourself of people's stories. For instance, for me, as I love listening to interviews with people who are INFPs, <laughs> okay, back to the Myers-Briggs, and like, what are those challenges we face with that or with ADD? What are the challenges? So it both helps you make sense of your own journey, but it also gives you, oh, that's how so-and-so has found their way with that. Or, wow, so like Susan discovered this about her ability to tell the story from numbers. Hey, wait, I didn't realize that was a thing. And let's say somebody listening to that is like, wow, I, I do that too. And that helps them develop the insight. So listening to people's stories is another wonderful way of developing insights. I think it's probably one of the best ways, isn't it? And if we circle back almost to where we start this conversation and reading, that's effectively what we were doing as children. We were reading, okay, it was fiction, but I bet you it was probably based on the author's own adventures in their childhood or stories they've been told or whatever. And Suzanne, listening to especially your episode with Angus Fletcher that time, I think, and he just talks about how we don't even know how the brain processes stories, but it's the way that we get insights and we learn most from mm. and you can see that in adverts that are smart and that have it's last funny. Oops, sorry i was just gonna <laughs> mention a good old angus fletcher as i love that so that's another great perspective on, on storytelling and i love what he said is that great fiction doesn't lecture doesn't say, okay, this is the way you're supposed to think. It creates an experience. And out of that experience, you have epiphanies, you have lessons learned, you have introspection created. So yeah, definitely folks listen to that episode. <laughs> Fantastic. You can listen to me fangirling all over Angus Fletcher. <laughs> I love that. And as I said to you, Suzanne, you brought out stuff in Angus that I haven't heard other people. So I guess the fangirl approach worked. <laughs> he didn't seem to mind. <laughs> well, there's a difference between, and we've touched on this a little bit, there's a difference between being genuinely interested in something and having somebody on because they've approached you to be on your show. And I think that comes across when you listen to people as well. And it's just like when you go for an interview and you're not genuinely interested or this doesn't light you up or you're not being the you as you possible, it comes across. Whether we're able to put our finger on what exactly is coming across or not, it does come across. It, you're saying that, and then I'll loop back to my question which I, that I picked before we started recording, both what you just said, Susan, and then back to what you were talking about, Suzanne, is it reminds me of 
this marketing guy that I've studied from years, Dan Kennedy. And one of the things he said about great advertising, this is such a great metaphor for really being authentically you versus trying to put on a persona. He said, great advertising doesn't just attract your ideal client, it repels your non-ideal client. And so one of the other gifts of really getting in touch with who we are and being that is we're more likely to attract people into our life and get the jobs or the clients that really fit us versus the opposite. So to ask my question to build on, Suzanne, we're talking about how else do you discover who you are, what your gifts are, et cetera. I'm wondering in if if we could start off with you, Susan, because I was really like hungering for when you were talking about realizing you were just great at numbers, but you told the story of what does this mean? Like, can you give an example of how that really dawned on you that you weren't just a number cruncher, producer, finance person, you were able to connect with the why and why the people in your company should care about whatever it is you're sharing and how that informed this next chapter in your career journey. Mm, interesting. And I, I'm not sure that they're both related. So oh, okay. Oh, cool. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Okay. I started out in audit and in audit you go in and you look at another organization's numbers and you talk to people and blah, blah, blah. So you're constantly putting stories together around why people do things the way they do and how that feeds into the numbers. So I think I certainly and anyone in audit would start to dig down deep into what's underneath and the underlying assumptions and all of that. So that's maybe the background. But for me, when you were speaking there, the thing that came up was, and I would say it wasn't, it's funny, I've, I've skipped ahead to a few jobs, but 20 years ago, pretty much 20 years ago, I found myself in Uganda working as, I didn't find myself there, but literally I went <laughs> off to Uganda and I was working as a financial controller of an, a small non-profit, but an international one. We were just quite small in Uganda and the team would just send their numbers into finance and the finance team who I was responsible for would try and figure out based on the funding that we had received what they were spending the money on and for me this was just like the daftest thing ever well, how would I know if the invoice was for 500 concrete blocks that it was for the up north place or the down south place or the eastern village or whatever I mean I just didn't know and people didn't see the connection between the numbers on their invoices and the work that they were doing. And so if you didn't see that connection, just didn't make sense the whole thing. And for me, we had a contract and we had to deliver that contract. And the contract is made up of two things, words and numbers. And if the numbers and the words don't match, then we're in trouble. Because somebody is matching them somewhere along the line. And that's what I became very... I, I would say passionate about really was making sure that the people who were working with me understood that when they read a contract, that they also knew the numbers that went with it and that they could do it both ways and that it was telling a story always. And 
Yeah, and I suppose that just carried through. So everywhere I would go when people asked for anything, can I have money for whatever, I would always ask, well, what was it for? Explain it to me and get people to think in real terms about the money they're spending. Because when you don't see it, you're only passing an invoice or do making an order. You don't see the actual funding moving around. It's hard to, to concretize that. So I think making people related to their activities on the ground was how I did that. And then you build that up as you go higher in an organization and you have to bring people with you. And I suppose what I do now, I, th- I guess the way I look at it is when I go into an organization or work with an organization, I know the numbers. I know how to do the numbers. And that's a skill set that not many facilitators or coaches, leadership development people will have. So I can also say, well, let's leave the numbers here for now and let's work on the people part, because actually getting the people working together well is really important because often the numbers are where the difficult and tense moments will lie. And let's tackle the numbers later. And to be honest, I don't really want to tackle them at all. It's helpful to understand that if I talk to a chief executive or a finance director or CEO, whoever it might be, I can have the conversation at that level that I understand what they're talking about and they don't have to to translate it, I guess. However, they might need to realise that to bring people with them, they'll need to translate that. Mm. I hope that's answered your question. I feel like I talked for a very long time there. It's no, interesting. no worries. I'm curious, do you, and maybe Suzanne, you could be thinking about this too. Do you have like an aha moment when you realize like this just isn't my thing, whatever that is, whether as a consultant or when you were an employee, so that like you're non-UST, if you will. I suppose for me, I just felt like a lot of the time I was repeating the same stuff and behaviors weren't changing. There's only so much you can do and and things had changed utterly that some of the things still weren't changing enough and that I wasn't being taken seriously as an individual that it was still easy to close me off and go, well, there is the finance person. We don't have to listen to you. You're the numbers person. And when you're a director in an organization, you're a director as far as I'm concerned, first and foremost, and then your discipline comes next. But if everyone else doesn't feel like that, it's quite easy to sideline people. And so I had some very, very, very difficult career moments where I thought, to hell with it, life's too short, I don't want to keep doing this. And I went so far from accountancy because when I went back to university in 2010 to do a master's, I studied nationalism and ethnic conflict because I really wanted a change and I wanted to learn something for the curiosity and the love of learning. And I was very interested in identity And the groups and groupism and stuff like that and identity came from that, my love of all of that. And and, and since then, I think I've been finding my my way 
So I went back into an organization, but I went in in more leadership, general management leadership role. And now I'm working for myself. But still, the jobs I've done, I've been kind of weaving a path that is always unveiling itself. And as the, you know, the poet Antonio Machada says, traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. I love that quote. Thank you. And what about you, Suzanne? Is there like a a vignette you can share where you it became really clear, like, man, this is really something I'm good at, or boy, this just isn't me. The one I was thinking about was so when I was still working in a consultancy firm, I was working on a big project. And it was a change project. It was introducing a new appraisal system. You know, there's a lot of training, a lot of comms, all the stuff that I really like doing. And it was going along swimmingly and a really good relationship with the client and all of that. And then the partner came up from London and and all the big wigs came and started uh, doing all these presentations to the client. And they were waffling on about this, that and the other. And then they left the room. And I remember the client turning to me and saying, Suzanne, what were they talking about? And, uh, and then I'd be like, oh, okay. What they're trying to say was this. That was when I realized, okay, that this way of doing things, it's not working for me, but it's also not working for the client either. And the fact that I'm having to translate for my client, clearly the way that I am doing things is working better for this client than the corporate way. So that was a real oh, moment. Maybe there is a different way of doing it. And then I think it's, I I mentioned like the trail of breadcrumbs earlier. And and I think that's really been a theme for me over the last probably 10 years or so. Just reading something, thinking, oh, that's interesting. So my first, I suppose, understanding of story and the power of story was in about 2008. I've been on my own for about a year. And I was doing an interim piece of work, which I hated, by the way. I hate doing interim projects, but I needed the money. So I was doing it. But in that piece of work, I was working as part of a talent team. And again, we were introducing a performance management system and they were doing some training. And this company got some external trainers in to train the senior leadership team in how to deliver the message of this new system, which was actually quite robust in comparison to what they'd had before. And they introduced the concept of telling the story as to why this was a good idea and why it was going to happen, which was a real shift for this organisation, but a shift for me, because to that point, the comms had always been on any change projects, just telling people what was going to happen. The idea of doing a story was new to me, but it really piqued my interest. But then I kind of filed it away and went off and did other things for a while. But then I realised now, looking back, that it was a whole load of little, a trail of things, of interesting people, interesting conversations, like, oh, that's interesting, I'll file that away. And then I gradually started to formulate this idea of, based on all these experiences, I think, that there's a different way of doing things to what I've seen done before. And I don't know what that is yet, but I think there's a different way of doing change. And I need to figure this out. And, and that's led me to doing the PhD and and all of that. But it was sort of a series of things which I followed, which I'm still following every day. I read something or hear something and think, oh, that's interesting. and make a note in my interesting folder. And eventually it will all come together, I hope. You only (laughs) have one still working progress. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. One quick thing related to the interesting folder, Suzanne, and then I want to share my example and it'll fit in with your stories about not fitting in in a rigid 
environment that I was just listening this weekend to a podcast. It was one of the how to be an INFP ones that I've really been diving into. And one of the things that I think both of you will relate to because all three of us are involved in creating stuff, content in whatever form is this person was saying, if like sometimes what we think is burnout is really that we haven't inputted enough novelty, new information, et cetera. Yeah. To power the, like my words, like the creativity machine in us and, and well, yeah. And especially again, Susan, I bet you're also high input. And it's one of those things when somebody says something that you agree with and you're like, wow, they're so smart because you already agree with it. But it's also helpful to hear somebody reinforce something you've kind of felt, but have somebody else name it. So inputting from a lot of different sources is a way to jumpstart creativity, to fuel it. If I could put my career coach hat on for one second, one of the classic is to help people discover like, what am I passionate about? What fires me up? What am I really good at? Is just to imagine like one of those old fashioned analog dials, like one to 10, a meter. And just as you're doing your job and outside your job too, just notice your level of enthusiasm, energy, engagement, and notice it for the different things that you're doing. And so the example that sometimes I'll share with clients because it it was so striking. And this happened also around 15, more than 15 years ago. And I'll do the short version, Suzanne, because you know the longer version. <laughs> and so in the storytelling theme, yet again, with all of us comes out, I was approached by an organization to help them create a storytelling in business seminar. And I was like super pumped because at that point I was still working on translating my work in clinical storytelling, therapeutic storytelling into the workplace. I had plenty of ideas, but not lots of opportunity to share those. I'm like, this is awesome. And then they explained that what they wanted me to do was to translate somebody else's book on storytelling into their seminar using their very rigid formulaic seminar creation process. So that exactly. <laughs> so for people just listening to audio, Susan just did a big uh, yawn. <laughs> I love it. Exactly. So two things I despise. One is having to just be a mouthpiece for somebody else's work versus synthesizing many, many different sources, number one, and making it my own. And then number two, to your point, Suzanne, this rigid, this is how you have to do it structure. I'm much more of a intuitive program creator. What, but I decided like, it's a great career move. Let's do it. So this was a project. It wasn't a be an employee there. So I fly down to New York City, meet with the author, meet with a company. And it's like, this is worth it. This could be my ticket to storytelling in business. I'll do it. Then I fly back home to Maine with major reservations, even though like I can do this because 
the project schedule was super aggressive and I'm not a racehorse. <laughs> I, I don't work well under like really tight, you know, time constraints. I had to learn a whole new learning management system, not my idea of a good time. And I discovered really quickly that this was a very no-nonsense, impersonal organization. There was no, like how we, the three of us get along and like laughing, joking, caring about the other person as a human. It was all like chop, chop, like, what's up? Like, have you delivered this? And and then the other piece is related to the lack of communication is my support system there wasn't returning my emails asking like, I can't get into the learning management system. I don't know how to work this. And my first deadline, I'm working the whole weekend. My first deadline is Monday and I can't deliver on my first deadline. I'm getting no support, blah, blah, blah. Kind of like what so many new employees experience being a new hire. And so it finally hit me. There's no way I'm going to be able to deliver a good pro a product, let alone a good product in their deadline. I hate this already. I spent the whole weekend hating on them and this project and feeling like a big loser. And so I'm like, face it, you need to bail. So I, I let them know and said, I know somebody who, who can do this. I'm not going to be able to deliver what you want. And then I switched from that where my energy meter was, if there was something below zero, it would have been at, to switching gears and working on this new seminar that I was working on, on my own called What Every Manager Needs to Know About Human Nature. And it was so wild. The moment I switched gears, I'm like Lazarus rising from the dead. <laughs> that I could just feel myself just like, my energy level and, and and Susan, you talked about the curiosity that you have and my curiosity about like, oh, this cool research, how can I translate this so they'll understand it? And what about this and this? And it just hit me. It's like, I need to do my thing and not be a spokesperson for somebody else's material and work in an organization that's very formulaic and and frankly, really transactional and impersonal. That's not me. So so that's an example of that. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? The stories we've all told, it's almost like a visceral reaction to doing something that isn't you. You know it when you feel it. And I think that's the learning for me is, is thinking back to things that you've done in the past. And how did it feel to be doing that thing? Because you know, deep down, when something isn't bringing you any joy, whether you admit it to yourself is another thing, but you know it. Yeah. And so to your point, let's bring that awareness more into the present in guiding our, our journeys versus looking like there's some things we can't know until looking back, but really noticing, you know, moment to moment when we have that visceral, either like, man, this is awesome. I'm in the zone or like, man, I hate this. Susie, oh, you're going to say great. something. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's just really reminded me of something. First, I wanted to just pick up on 
something you said right at the beginning well about the, the energy and the exhaustion and burnout but again back to David White because something he said was and this is somebody else had said it to him but I don't remember who but the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest but wholeheartedness and I love that because you know yourself that when you're like you've demonstrated that so well, David, because you talked about your energy coming back up and breathe life back into you because your whole heart was in it. But in the other one, your heart was like over there somewhere and the separation. But the visceral for me, this is fantastic because it leads on from earlier on on the why I left accountancy almost. I used to go to work and we had this board where you signed in every morning as you went up the stairs and my colleague who I was having a really, really difficult time with, there was one morning I was going in and I I saw that this person was already in the office and I put my name across like that and I went, <laughs> no. and I caught myself and I realized, and that's back to the present moment, David, but I realized when I caught myself that visceral reaction that I had been doing it for days, if not weeks but I hadn't been conscious of it like that. But that one day, whatever it was, I really caught myself. And that was it. That was a massive turning point because I thought I cannot keep going somewhere where before I even get on the first step of the stairs into the office, I'm ready to run away. And I think, you know, the it's something about the self-awareness you're never aware that you're not aware until you figure out you're aware, you know? I love it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. But it's kind of true. Yeah. And that's when sometimes you do need other people to say to you, I've noticed that you haven't been in great form over the last few weeks, or I've noticed you've bitten my head off or whatever. And I think at times helping people to see what's in front of them that they're not seeing can be a great service to others as well. That's such a great point. Back to some of the earlier things you're talking about. And I know one of the other terms I love that David White will use is like, what is a courageous conversation you need to have? And one of the biggest gifts we can give to people is being brave enough to say like, hey, can I bring up something that I'm noticing? Because it is awkward to do that. And it really, it takes a good friend to be willing to overcome the awkwardness to give us that feedback. So that's or someone who doesn't know you at all. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, what is wrong care. with this person? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, to, as we finish off the conversation, is, is about particular resources and things that you've used. So I know last time we all spoke in preparation for today, we were sharing various things, podcasts and courses and all sorts. I just wondered if there are particular things that you have seen, read, heard that you would want to share around helping people to find their space, their niche in the world. David, I'll ask you first. Yeah, sure. So one, it's definitely your USU. Number two, an amazing book called The Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope. Can't sing its praises high enough. At the very least, I'd recommend people listen to a couple of podcasts by Stephen Cope. The book Callings by Greg Lavoie, also beautifully written, like The Great Work of Your Life. And 
super useful in terms of noticing what brings you alive. I also, I'm just, as you could probably tell from me mentioning the Myers-Briggs a bunch of times, I'm such a big fan. I know it doesn't resonate with everybody, but if it does, it's worth taking and then seeing if it does like, wow, that's really me resonate with you is to listen to podcast interviews, watch YouTube videos related to what you said, Susan, about we're not aware that we're unaware, <laughs> you know, that it's like, we're one of the best ways to learn about our blind spots. Well, actually, as I mentioned before, is like hearing people who are similar to you talk about their discoveries. So recommend that. And then a little shout out to my plan is by early spring is to join you two ladies with my uh, podcast. And it's going to be on people's career journeys and talking about moments of truth of discovering like, oh, this doesn't work for me. This works for me, et cetera. So uh, that's coming up soon. It's going to be excellent. And I'm not saying that because <laughs> I'm going to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for being on it. And thank you, Susan. I, we got to book our time too. <laughs> no, it's going to be good. I enjoyed my conversation yeah. with you about your career. It's just so fascinating. I think Susan, what about you? Stuff you've been doing that you found inspirational? Yeah, I mean, so many things. That's the thing. And I'm struggling to come up with just a couple of even books at the moment, because I think that's the thing, isn't it? For me, there's been iterations all the time. And so the people that have maybe helped me a few years ago aren't necessarily the people who I am being helped by now in books and podcasts. But one new podcast I came across recently is the Evolving Leaders podcast. And their phrase is, the world is evolving, are you? And I really like that. They're exploring quite new developments in neuroscience and science surrounding emotions and feelings and different ways of language and leadership and stuff like that. So they've got a really good array of guests. And I suppose, yeah, I think just get curious is what I would say and hold it lightly have a bit of fun I think it can be really stressful and I know I found it very stressful to figure out what my passion was because it, I love so many things I didn't want to narrow it down and I think there are and what you've talked about Suzanne it's the breadcrumb trail you know look back as well at the things that brought you joy and often doing the highs and lows of my career what was it that I overcame will show you some of your strengths and I think you can do a lot of this discovery on your own and then like you said David seeking out I think it's seeking out the people that sound like you or that you would love to sound like and you'll learn from them as well and have conversations we you can get very lost in your own head and it's also good to get out and talk about it and sometimes when you hear yourself speak you go oh now I've got a bit closer I think the, the visceral stuff again like you've said Suzanne so a sensory approach, I recommend to doing things like that and and to hold it lightly. I think the worst thing you can do is say, this is my passion and forget about everything else. <laughs> and then it comes back and bites you. Yeah, 
And I agree not to get too stressed about it, because I think I've come across so many people, I'm sure you have too, who are searching for the perfect job, the perfect career. And there's no such thing. One's career has twists and turns and ups and downs. I've used the phrase with you, David, but the career climbing frame or the career jungle gym rather than the career ladder. It's just everyone moves around. So I think it's good to not expect it to be perfect and it's constantly changing and and for me it's about I, I laugh about why that's interesting folder but it is actually a thing it's a, a physical ring binder with stuff in it that I I put in when I read something that's interesting and I I have other ring binders it's very old school I know but that are, are by topic I know you can't see all mine they're all over there I have a but, um, if I moved around you would so I, I put them in topics for stuff that I I read and write about all the time. But quite often I'll read something and I don't know where it fits into the stuff that I do. So it goes into my That's Interesting folder. For, and then at some point later it will come out or it won't because I'll no longer find it interesting. So for me, it's about keeping track of this stuff so that you can follow the breadcrumbs because we all read a lot of stuff. We all, Everyone sees a lot of things and I find it difficult to keep track of everything. So I, I just make little notes and things like that for myself. Susie, and before we wind up, can you just say a little bit about the Career Jungle Gym? Because that was such a cool metaphor. And, and it goes back to actually what we didn't talk about. I, well, I, when I talked about the little meter, I didn't really talk about experimentation. As a And back to Susie, you're talking about make it sensory, like try stuff out. I forgot to mention that. Oops. Your career jungle gym will perfectly frame that. So can you share that? Because that'll be really helpful to listeners. And I can't take the credit for this. So this was actually one of my clients who first told me this phrase, but we were talking about the traditional way of thinking about a person's career, where you start here and you climb up the steps in the ladder. And then at some point you reach the top of the ladder. And she said to me, the world has changed. And now it's like a climbing frame in the UK, a jungle gym in the US, where you climb up a few steps and then you might do something else for a while. And that takes you off sideways or even downwards and then you might go off somewhere else and the end point might be the same or not but you'll have got there in a series of steps so I think for me when I left my consulting job a few people said to me oh, aren't you scared of getting off the career ladder and I just said no because I don't want to be on that ladder and I'm going to make my own ladder so get lost and and so that was kind of <laughs> That was my way of thinking. And I think it's we all need to break away from that way of thinking because the world isn't like that anymore. For some people, that's great. You start somewhere and you work your way up and you never leave. But I mean, how many people is that relevant to? So I think for everybody, it's about being creative, experimenting, exactly as you said, David, and accepting that your career is not going to be a series of upward trajectories, that there will be bits that don't work sometimes and maybe sideways, maybe downwards, but that's all okay. Love it. Makes for an interesting life. It certainly does. Thank you both so much. It's been another wonderful discussion. The yeah, time has flown has. by yet again. Oh. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank I you. hope people listening and watching this get a lot out of it. And I would encourage anybody to get in touch with David and Susan because they are both very wise people and you'll learn a lot from speaking to both of them. Any of the three of us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. 
Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.